The other thing that floated across my mind as I realised that and realised that today is actually the first day of December, but it's also the first day of Advent. And in an unexpected, kind of nice way, as we turn around this last bend of the calendar and we head towards Christmas, uh, we enter into this season of Advent. And we do that, and Advent is, is a word that means arrival, you know, coming. And as we do that, uh, our, our series on Micah, kind of unplanned, uh, only joined the dots together this week, also lands on a promise of an Advent, a promise of a coming, a promise of arrival, a promise of a future glorious uh, restorer, who is mysteriously majestic and divine in his description, but there's also an obscurity to him, a humility uh, to this figure who will bring this unprecedented peace uh, into our world. Advent, as I said, means coming, means arrival. It's a Latin word of something prestigious. Advent as a season for us that heads into Christmas has evolved into a time that recognises both the arrival in human history of God's promised Messiah that, we're, that we read about today out of Micah and then it also looks forward to the promise that that Messiah made about his second coming, about when he will return again. Advent captures both of these uh, truths and gets us, causes us to reflect on them. If Advent is about anything, it's about a God who keeps his promise. And if Micah 5 is about anything, it's about that same promise-keeping God. So as we begin Advent, as, as we in faith, we look forward to that second arrival of Christ, our knowledge and our understanding of that and our experience of that is underpinned and girded by his first arrival and our experience of that in our life and that holds us in place no matter how obscure or how dark or or how much you know as john spoke this morning people want to blot out a representation of christ in our world our experience of it our knowledge of that holds us in place and as true as that is for us it was perhaps even more pertinent for micah's audience because they would need to cling to this promised advent, this, this promise of a great restorer and redeemer who would be their peace for some 700 years in a context that Micah describes as being like the pain of labor or, or the feeling of abandonment. And the promise that comes in Micah 5 is one of the promises that hold God's people in place. Hey, let's pray and we'll get to work. And we're looking only at the first six chapters again of Micah. So you'll have to kind of mind the, the riches of the rest of the passage in your own time in small groups or if you're doing the soap, uh, that's where you can get into it. So let's pray. A loving God, uh, as we come to your word, that explains to us just the kind of God that you are. Uh, would your Holy Spirit enliven its truth in our hearts, that we would be transformed and that we would be warmed with affection for you. And we thank you that we can just pray to you like this based on our relationship with Jesus who through his death on a cross deals with the barriers that, that keep us separate from conversations with you, deals with our sin and whose resurrection provides the enduring uh, relational environment for us to come and to pray and to be with you. Amen.
I was thinking about promises and I was thinking that uh, a promise is only as comforting as the power behind that promise. The good intentions, the well-meaning sentiment are no ultimate comfort if they can be thwarted or if they can be interrupted or if they can be derailed. I can make a promise. I make lots of promises. I could make a promise to my family to say that, hey, while I'm your dad or while I'm your husband, no harm is going to come to you. And I make that promise based on my commitment and my concern and my love for them. And I mean that promise with all my heart. Uh, you could test it if you want. You could try and get up out of your seat and make your way to my family and cause them harm. And we'll see whether my promise is true, whether you can get to them before I get to you. I promise you. They will be the only ones who leave intact. I promise you. But here's the thing. As nice as my desire is, my commitment is, as confident as I am in my promise, I don't run the universe. I don't know. One of you might be packing a gun. One of you might just be bigger than me or stronger than me. There's a line about a JB song like me, but none of you are in the hip-hop industry. It doesn't matter. You're just simply more powerful than me. And I'll die trying to keep that promise. And even though that might be nice, that might be moving, might even form part of the eulogy they talk about me at my funeral. He died trying, but it wasn't effective. It didn't bring the promised security that he promised. They're burying his family alongside of him. You might promise your spouse that Friday night is date night and nothing will get in the way. So you sort out work and you arrange all the things in your week to leave the job site or leave the office early to get there for date night and then 8pm rolls around and they're sitting there thinking, they promised. But you've been run over by a truck or kidnapped by terrorists. You're keen to keep that date night, but you don't run the universe. Sometimes there are forces that are greater than your promise. could even be a flat tire. You might stand looking at your bride or your groom and promise that in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, that you, that they are your relational priority and the standard of beauty in your life exclusively and eternally. You might even say, with God's help, this is my promise. But kids and work and loans challenge that promise, even supplant that promise, the exclusivity of that promise. Alarmingly, not only don't we run the external universe, in varying degrees we can't even maintain our own internal universes to be true to the promises at times that we so desperately want to keep. There's a brokenness to this world and to our lives that can ruin, can thwart and derail even the fiercest promises that we make. Our promises are only as good as the power we have to make them happen. Sometimes that power is within us and sometimes it's not. When God makes a promise, no matter how glorious, how unprecedented, how off the chain crazy that promise may seem. There is no weapon, there is no misfortune, no power, no length of time, no relational challenge that can thwart the promises that he makes. 
That is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. Or as Isaiah says in Isaiah 14.27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed it. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? It's a rhetorical question. When God makes a promise, it doesn't matter how dark it gets, how overwhelmed we might feel, how impossible that promise might seem. God runs the universe, not the environments that come around us, not the circumstances, not lapses of time, not even you. His promises use these things as scaffolding to run along rather than obstacles to be thwarted by. We can take a promise made by God and base our lives on it. We can take a promise made by God and cling to it as both an anchor and a guide. It secures and directs. They are light in overwhelming darkness. They are hope in unrelenting despair. Comfort through periods of time that last longer and longer than we had expected or hoped. Micah 5 is most famous, most well known because it's one of these promises. A promised advent, a promised arrival of a future restorer who Matthew and John's Gospels identify as Jesus. Who just turns up, as Micah 5 describes, some 700 years later on. That was the first Christmas. That was the advent that we look back on, that they look forward to. But here's the thing. But here's something I think is more incredible. Something that we need to think on. Is that this promised glorious ruler does not just turn up in a vacuum. He comes by way of a remnant. His arrival is not just contingent on God doing the miraculous at some point in the future, but also on God doing the miraculous through the journey of history in his people, with his people. The advent, the arrival of this promised ruler depends also on God's promise to preserve people, to preserve this remnant of people who have been described in Micah, who despite their environment and their circumstances and their powerlessness, trust, cling to and organize their lives around God's established promises. What does this remnant look like? We've been told it looks like the lame. It looks like those who have been cast off. There's nothing inspiring about this remnant, about these people. There's nothing of their own strength that's going to get them through. God's promises are not merely spoken and executed as static events in history. They are history. They form history. They provide the means the comfort and the confidence to live in a universe that we don't control. Incredibly, for 700 years, God in his goodness, through promises like the one in Micah 5, and you can find numerous other promises throughout the Old Testament. You can go to Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 18, 2 Samuel 1, Isaiah 9, all these promises about this restorer who will come. They nourished and maintained a people who faithfully believed and trusted and waited for the arrival of the promise. And it shaped how they lived. 
the promise, the words of God actually form for and shape a picture of God in their hearts and minds. And it warms their hearts with trust and affection for him. In Matthew's gospel, which records the arrival of this promise, some magi roll into town. And magi are always a sign that Christmas is on the way. When you see them start turning up in your shopping malls or on your Christmas cards, you know Christmas is soon. They claim that there is a child who is born as the king of the Jews. This baby is at birth a king by its very nature. It will never be inaugurated later on at some point, never need to be elected or recognized. This baby simply is a king. Herod, who is a token king, who feigns interest and concern in his child, asks the chief priest, well, where would such a child be born? Where would the Christ, which is shorthand for the promised one, who is the child that the Magi have just described, where would this child be born? Well, the religious leaders say, well, that's easy peasy. Everybody knows that. Micah 5.2 tells us, they kind of undersell the reference because they're their own threatened status in this prophecy. But Israel's teachers know Micah 5 describes the arrival of a promised king whose strength is in I am, who powerfully and actively shepherds his people, whose rule is peace. Everybody knows that this promise is found in Micah 5. In John 7, When just your everyday Israelite is trying to work out if Jesus is the Messiah, they use Micah 5 to try and settle the dispute. They're talking about Jesus, things he's doing. They say, hey, but this dude can't be the Messiah. This dude's from Nazareth. The Messiah, uh, the king, the great king of restorations from Bethlehem, right? Just like his ancestor David, just like Micah 5 says. And everyone on the ground amongst the everyday persons knows this well-known promise of Micah 5. Israel clung to this promise of God through Micah. And while some people politicize this promise, while some people militarize this promise, others commercialize this promise, some people simply lived in faith by it. They walked in a way that God approved of. And that, that is a profound grace of God. That that could take place in an environment described as the labor of childbirth, as, as abandonment, is for want of a better word, just the supernatural care of God. God does not merely uh, make a promise at one point in history and just fold his arms and wait for its execution date. He himself is the great invisible king, the great shepherd, the Lord of hosts, whose word is the active agent, in human history, and the hearts of people who would cling to it. I was struck by this. And my sermon prep was, was heading in a different direction, more exegetical uh, direction, if you like. But then I just kind of dwelt on this amazing uh, preservation of God via promise. And we see that it turns up in at least five uh, people, five extraordinary but humble people, uh, five obscure people, if you like, uh, but shaped by God's promises, dependent on God's promises. 
I really don't know what's happening with my slides. Anyway, pretend you can see a picture up on the screen of Luke 1. The first couple are known as Mary and Joseph. Luke tells us that they live in Galilee, but Joseph's ancestral home is Bethlehem, which they travel to and eventually give birth to Jesus, you know, there, this, this king that's talked about in Micah 5. Hence the confusion about where's Jesus from in John 7. Mary and Joseph are ridiculously irrelevant people, ridiculously irrelevant parents. They are peasants. No status, no wealth, no power. What they are, though, is radically faithful, radically trusting in God's promises. When God breaks his silence, that Micah describes as a period of abandonment back in verse 3, he tells this irrelevant but faithful couple that the promised Messiah will come by means of a supernatural birth. Mary, though you're a virgin, the Holy Spirit will bring to life a child in you who is actually the promised king of Israel. As Micah promised in verse 2, the ruler will come from the earthly location of Bethlehem and the divine origin of God himself. Which is what that phrase from ancient times captures. It's a phrase that's only used of God himself. It's a unique unique child who will be a unique king. Who is not just merely like God, but who is God. Joseph's response to this news eventually, after some coaxing by an angel, is, Okay, man, let's light this thing up. Mary's response is, I am the Lord's servant. And she sings this song rich with the greatness of God to preserve his promise and his people against all odds called the Magnificent. It's incredibly rich with its theology of the goodness, the greatness, the promise-keeping capacities of God. The next uh, couple that we bump into there is Zachariah. He's a priest and his wife is Elizabeth. We find them in Luke 1.6. They were both described as righteous before God, walking blamelessly. And that does not mean they were perfect, but it means they had sincere hearts. They had a sincere approach to God about their lives. They trusted God, that he is faithful and good, and their lives were lived accordingly to that. They, they, they walked according to that, and their walk was approved by God. That's what to be righteous means. They too are swept up into this narrative of the arrival of the promised restoring king. Though they are barren, they will have a son who will prepare the way for Jesus. Elizabeth's response to this we find in Luke one twenty-five: The Lord has done this. God has reversed my shame. And then later on, Zechariah, he just bursts into a prophetic song essentially about a promise-keeping God, his quality, his character, his greatness. Another person, he doesn't get much traction or he doesn't get much chop out at Christmas. You don't tend to find this guy on Christmas cards or in nativity scenes. His name is Simeon. He's a layman at the temple. He's not a priest, but he's described as righteous and devout. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is the hope of deliverance. He is clinging to the promises of God. The Holy Spirit has promised him that he would see it, that he would actually see the arrival of Micah 5. And when Jesus arrives at the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, Simeon takes Jesus in his arms and he blesses God. 
because his eyes have seen the salvation of God according to his word, according to his promise. And he kind of miraculously recognizes this in this child, Jesus. There's simply nothing noteworthy about any of these people apart from the common theme of having a faith in God who makes and keeps promises and having their lives regardless of their poverty, regardless of uh, their worldly merit, shaped by and held in place by these promises of God. What is extraordinary, what is what struck me is that this comes out of a period of history that Micah says begins with the humiliation of Israel. The humiliation of their king. It's graphically pictured in the fact that the king is struck on the cheek by a rod. So helpless, so defenseless is Israel's king who is supposed to be the God's kind of representative on earth is shamed by the fact that his aunt, that the enemies can just walk up to him and strike him on the face. This leads into an ongoing environment, an ongoing experience that Micah likens to the pain of childbirth for God's people. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, in chapter 4, sorry, back in 4.10 and in this chapter here, where they experience a time of silence from God, which Micah says could feel like abandonment. God will preserve his promise, though, in the hearts of people. It will not simply arrive in a vacuum, And even though Israel will never again have uh, an internal king, a monarch who sits on a throne, their faith will for centuries know no earthly sovereign to administer it. They will live and must live faithfully under their true king, the Lord of hosts. Neither will they uh, again experience the signs and the wonders of their history. There'll be no uh, escapes from Egypt, no crossing of the River Jordan, no miraculous works of God in this time. They must cling to the revealed and declared promises of God via his word that he's already given, the word that he's established, like this promise in Micah 5. Out of this period of history emerges the incredible faith in these people, a faith that is somewhat supernatural, a faith that is only possible for those who Trust in God. And Micah 5 is more than a promise to act in history for our well-being, for our ultimate good. Micah 5 is the, the promise that God operates in the hearts of people to maintain faith in them, to maintain faith in those who cling to him despite the environments, despite the circumstances, in your families, in your marriages, at work, whatever it is. These promises say... There's a way of having hope. There's a way of knowing the future will be okay. Well, the Apostle Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Second Corinthians one twenty says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. In the arrival of Jesus at Christmas, we find the advent of every promise that God ever made to humanity to restore all that is broken, uh, all that is broken in our world and all that is broken in us. Micah tells us this coming ruler who the Gospels identify as Jesus will stand and shepherd his flock. He is a ruler 
who is actively caring for those who cling to him. There's no passiveness about his care or concern. It's totally active. It's totally welfare driven. In John 10.10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He's referencing back who lays down his life for his sheep. When environments and circumstances seem to be overwhelming, when they cause us uh, anguish within us, even like the birth of a child, this shepherd stands with you, for you, to guide and nurture you, even at times correct you, so that you may experience in those environments, in those anguishes, a quality of life previously unknown. Total faith and dependency in the goodness of God. The presence of the goodness of God in your life. This shepherd can do this because of his intimate and shared strength that he has. That is attached to the majesty and the name of the, of the Lord of hosts. This shepherd, as Micah tells us, is on level footing with the Lord of hosts. And nothing can frustrate the plans of God. And just as nothing can frustrate the plans of God, nothing can frustrate the care of this shepherd, this shepherd king towards his flock. Well, what does this care look like? And how is it experienced? How does it shape us? Well, Micah simply tells us, he is our peace. Well, Paul captures this in Philippians 4. There is a peace we come to know through a relationship with this promised shepherd king that overcomes environments and circumstances of this broken world. There is a peace also that brings a war in our heart as it deals with the brokenness that is in there and brings us to this life that Jesus described back in John 10.10, a life in the full, a life full of a quality of life that we see the effectiveness of Jesus to deal with our fears, to deal with our failures, to deal with our anxieties, to even deal with our sins in a way that holds us in place, that sees us cling to God rather than to run from Him or hide from Him. This is the promise that arrived at Christmas. This is the promise of Micah 5. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes this peace. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. This is the peace that, Je- that Jesus promised, this promised. Or this is the peace that Jesus, the promise of Micah establishes in your heart of, of someone who clings to him. It's not temporal. It's not conditional on circumstances or environments. It's established in the greatness and the power of the one who makes the promise, the one who is on level footing and authority with the Lord of hosts, who is the one who runs the universe. In John 16, Jesus says, to the, says this to his disciples, and by extension to us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it as the world gives it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And the question this morning as we turn this corner 
into this season of Advent, into this section of Micah, is this. Is this Jesus, this promised restorer of Micah 5, is he your peace? Does he shepherd and rule your heart? Not like Santa Claus, if you're good, he'll bring you good things. But as a king who himself is good and transforms the brokenness to life for those who humbly cling to him and take shelter in him. This promise, while can be fully experienced in a relationship with Jesus, is not fully completely experienced or developed in our environments or circumstances. But Jesus makes this promise in Luke 22, in verses 14 to 20, that one day, those of us with this promise in our heart will all sit with him in a kind of peace that's described here in Micah 5, that's global, that's to the ends of the earth. The kind of peace that we looked at last week in chapter 4, every person sitting under his own fig tree, every person sitting by his own vine. And there's going to be no one to make them afraid. This promised peace, though, comes unexpectedly by way of Jesus' death. But it's not a death that was futile or forms a moving part of a eulogy. It was a death that was actively effective. It was a death that brings life. It is a substitutionary death. All of Jesus' righteousness for all of our sinful brokenness. This is the means through which the peace that is described in Micah 5, the peace that is tied up in Jesus, is applied to our lives. Here is where the heart must bend in joyful submission to the shepherd king, here at the cross. The shepherd will give his life, but not as a victim of circumstances or environment, but as one who is king over even the curse of death, which is the ultimate destroyer of peace. Jesus brings peace to us by becoming our shame, our guilt, the, our bearer of the wrath of God towards sin. Jesus is the one who feels the abandonment, who feels the agony of childbirth, if you like, for one of the metaphor. And in doing so, brings us close to God where true peace is found. You know, before his death on the cross, for you and me, Jesus established a timeless practice for the church where we could look back to the promise of the cross and where we could also look forward to the promise of heaven, of global peace. And as we come to this time of Advent, let us also come to this table with peaceful hearts and give thanks to God for the promise that is found in Micah in a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus. Luke tells us that Jesus identified this wine or this juice as giving meaning to his blood that would cover our sins and that this bread that we, that we eat as giving meaning to Jesus' body that would suffer on our behalf. And Jesus says we are to remember his promise, active in our hearts, until the day that they are active completely in a restored universe with Jesus as its great shepherd king.
So this morning, if your heart has found peace in Christ, then this table's for you. Come and, and, and grab a little bit of this juice and a bit of bread and go back to your seats and just be grateful. Reflect, be thankful for the restored peace that is in your life. And eat the bread as you think. And then just hold on to the cup and we'll drink that together. If Jesus has not become the peace in your heart, then this table's not for you. But we would say to continue to think upon that. To continue to see and search for and hopefully find the peace that was promised in Micah 5, that's delivered in Christ, that God wants for all people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter here in Micah 5, these first six verses that we've looked at. Here we find a promise from a God to deliver peace to us, which is something we need so desperately in this world at the moment. Our prayer this morning is that we who have come to know you would just with grateful hearts come and and, and just give thanks as we remember this promise fulfilled and this greater promise, if you like, of a time where we will just know and experience this promise in its fullness without any hindrance of sin, without any hindrance of all that is broken in this world. So this table looks back and it looks forward. We give you thanks for that this morning. Amen.